as a church, we've been working on growing in our Bible study skills. So we're totally committed to preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible here Friday mornings. Super important. But that's not enough. God calls each of us to be studying the Bible on our own, reading the Bible on our own, learning the Bible on our own, because it's only as, as we are preaching and teaching the Bible here and studying it on our own that Grace Church will become all that God wants us to become and that we'll have all the impact on the UAE and Abu Dhabi that God wants us to have. That's why we're working on how to study the Bible. Now, on every other seat, there was a little slip called how to study the Bible, which we passed out last January. If you've already got one, take this and give it to somebody else. Or maybe you are new here and haven't received one yet, but we've been working through this, so use that for for your notes. But I wanted to mention this morning that one helpful hint for studying the Bible is to realize that there are two different kinds of books in the Bible, two different kinds of, of literature in the Bible. There are teaching books, first of all, like the book of Romans or the book of 1 Corinthians. And in, in teaching books, they teach truth simply by making statements. Very simple. So if, if Paul wanted to communicate that God was powerful in the book of Romans teaching book, he might just say, God is powerful. Very simple. And we'd all understand what he's saying. That's teaching books. History books are different, though. History books like Exodus or the Gospels teach truth mostly by describing events. So the way that a history book would teach that God is powerful would be maybe like what Moses does in the book of Exodus where he describes God at the last minute parting the Red Sea and then Israel going across. Beautiful display of God's power. Now, the reason I mention that is that we're studying the life of Joseph this summer, which is at the end of the book of Genesis. And Genesis is a history book. So as we're studying, we want to be paying careful attention to what events God led Moses to include to teach us about Joseph's life. So what events does Moses include? And how did God lead Moses to emphasize particular things about those events? Because as we then line up those events and look at what's emphasized, we'll be able to see what was God wanting to teach us through, like this morning, chapter 39. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Genesis 39. Now, quick review. Two weeks ago, Genesis chapter 37, we saw Joseph and his brothers growing more and more in anger and jealousy and hatred towards him, so much so that at the end of chapter 37... They sell him to slave traders, and Joseph, 17-year-old young man, is on his way to Egypt to be sold into slavery. Then in Genesis 38, Moses shifts our focus from Joseph to Judah, and we saw last week that through Judah's sin and confession and trust in what the Messiah would do to forgive sins, that in that chapter, what we are taught is that sin can't stop God's mercy from forgiving those who confess their sins and put their trust in Jesus the Messiah. And we saw that sin can't stop God's promise of bringing the Messiah. That was last week. Now this week, the focus shifts back onto Joseph. We left Joseph at the end of chapter 37. Think about the 
desperate, heartbreaking situation he was in. 17 years old, torn away from his family and his friends and everything that was familiar to him. Traveling with some ruthless slave traders who didn't know him, didn't care about him, just wanted to sell him off to somebody as a slave. And Joseph was looking ahead to a future far away from his home in Egypt as a slave for the rest of his life, as far as he could tell. So we're all wondering now, what happens to Joseph in Egypt? That's the first question I want us to focus on this morning. And one of the ways we can tell what a biblical author wants to emphasize in a historical passage like this is to notice what he repeats. And I've underlined all the things I saw that were repetitious or repeatings, whatever you call them. So let's read verses 1 through the first half of verse 6 and notice what Moses emphasizes by repeating. Verse 1, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, Potiphar's sight, and attended him, and he, Potiphar, made him, Joseph, overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he, Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. This is an amazing paragraph here. Joseph, 17 years old, sold into slavery, heading into despair and hopelessness and difficulty. And what Moses emphasizes at the very beginning of this paragraph twice is, the Lord was with him. Now think about that. The Lord was with him. What have we seen about who is this Lord? Who is this God so far in the book of Genesis? Who was it that was with Joseph? Well, it's the same God, the same Lord, who back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 created the heavens and the earth. That's the God, the Lord, who, as Joseph was in slavery, was with him. It's the same God who promised that Abraham's offspring would bring God's blessing, would bring God's forgiveness. Abraham's offspring, this is a prophecy of the Messiah, would be born, would bring God's forgiveness to people from every different ethnic group. That same God who promised the Messiah was there with Joseph as he was in slavery. It was the same God who miraculously worked in the lives of Abraham and Sarah when they were well past childbearing years. Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was in her 90s, and God had them get pregnant because he promised them a child. Such power, such mercy, such beautiful, miraculous working, that's the God, that's the Lord who was with Joseph as he was in slavery. 
And I want to tell you, that's not just true for Joseph. As you read through the rest of the Bible, you see that the Lord is with everyone who is trusting Jesus Christ. Here's why we've got to be trusting Jesus Christ. It's because we've all sinned against God, every one of us in this room, and we all deserve his punishment. We're separated from him because of our sin. But God, in great love and mercy, sent Jesus. Jesus came, was born, lived, died on the cross, paid for the sins of everyone who would trust him, rose again, showing what his death accomplished. And so the moment you put your trust in Jesus, you're completely forgiven for all your sins, reconciled to God, and from that point on, God is always with you. He is with you now. He will be with you forever. This isn't just true for Joseph. This is true for you. I want you to really latch hold on that this morning. This made all the difference for Joseph, and this will make all the difference for you. Maybe you're facing a job difficulty. The Lord is with you in that job difficulty. Maybe it's visa problems. Anybody got visa problems here? If not, you will. Okay, so visa problems. The Lord is with you in these visa problems. Maybe it's relational difficulties or parenting or emotional heartache or discouragement or depression. The Lord is with you in that situation you're facing. Maybe it's a very difficult temptation you're wrestling with. You're feeling like, I just can't do this well. The Lord is with you in that. Now, what does it mean that the Lord is with you? Let me just mention two things. First, having to do with God's presence and the second having to do with God's power. God's presence means that as you seek him, he will meet you with his presence, his nearness, his glory, his beauty. He will strengthen you. He will comfort you. He will satisfy you. He will meet you with his presence. And then secondly, his power will work in amazing ways. His presence will satisfy you as you seek him. His power will work in amazing ways as you trust him. Now, that can look all kinds of different ways. Uh, Remember, the the people of Egypt were in slavery, and God was with them and delivered them from slavery. That's not what God does with Joseph. Joseph stays in slavery. God is with him during his slavery, but works in amazing ways in Joseph's slavery. So God is with you. His presence satisfying you, his power working beautifully for you, and I just, I'm just depressed. Some of you need to hear this really clearly this morning because you haven't been thinking about it. You've, you've been only thinking about the problem you're facing. Big problem. You're thinking about this and that and what if this and this and this and this and what. And what you've forgotten about is that the Lord is with you. You've let the problem so take up all of your bandwidth that God has been pushed off onto the side here and God wants to come back in and say, he is with you in this. He will satisfy you, strengthen you with his presence, and he will work powerfully as you trust him, just like we see what he does with with Joseph here. Notice that Moses repeats the word success in verses 2 and 3. God miraculously made everything Joseph put his hands to succeed. Don't make the mistake of thinking, well, this Joseph must have just been like a really sharp guy. I mean, he was like a super manager, super strategic person. God miraculously 
caused everything that Joseph did to succeed. Whatever Joseph was was because God was with him working through him, okay? For example, I just try to think of what, what this might have looked like. This is just my own guess. But maybe Joseph started off being put in charge of the animals. Joseph, take care of the animals. Well, God miraculously worked through Joseph taking care of the animals. The animals are thriving. They're jumping, happy, eating, reproducing. And Potiphar is just like, whoa, what happened to the animals? And Joseph, why don't you get in charge of buying the food for us? And God miraculously blesses Joseph with the merchants. And he comes back with more food, better food, cheaper food. Potiphar is just saying, this is amazing. Here, let me put you in charge of all of my money, Joseph. God miraculously blesses Joseph as he's taking care of Potiphar's money. His investments are, are multiplying. Potiphar's just like, this is incredible. Just take care of everything except I'll, I'll do the food. We don't really get that part, but somehow Potiphar kept handling the food. Maybe he was a foodie. We don't know, but whatever. So those are some possible ways, but the point is God miraculously worked in Joseph's situation. Okay, so here's how, here's my, I'm sorry, two more repetitions. As a result, Moses emphasizes Potiphar put Joseph in charge of all that he had, verses four and five, and then twice Moses repeats the idea that God blessed Potiphar's household and everything he had. So can you see, the Lord being with him made all the difference, do you see that? Moses wants us to say, whoa, God, you being with Joseph changed everything. And that's true for you too. God being with you will change everything. So here's how I summarize this first section. Even though Joseph was a slave, the Lord was with him and miraculously gave him such success that he became overseer of everything. Is that a pretty fair summary of this first paragraph? You work on it too, but anyway, that's what I came up with. It doesn't stop there. That's the first event. Now, what does God lead Moses to emphasize next? What event next? It starts halfway through verse 6. Let's read there down to verse 10. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. So Potiphar's wife develops a romantic interest in Joseph and seeks to seduce him. But Joseph resists this temptation. So what is Moses emphasizing here in this section? Well, not a lot is repeated that I could see, but another way you can tell what an author is emphasizing is by how much space he gives to something, how, much, how many words he uses for something. And notice that all of verses 8 and 9 shows what Joseph 
is thinking as he battles temptation, shows what's in his heart by what he says to Potiphar's wife about why he will not commit this sin. Let's read those two verses again. Look at verses eight and nine. We're gonna get a glimpse here into Joseph's heart. How was it that he fought against sin? Why didn't he commit this sin? What kept him from succumbing to this sin? Look at verses eight and nine. But he refused, Joseph refused, and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, those two verses are a little bit puzzling. See if you, if you feel this. You would think that after listing everything that Potiphar did for Joseph, and after mentioning that she is Potiphar's wife, Joseph would have said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Right? But that's not what he says. He lists everything that Potiphar has done for him and how she is Potiphar's wife, and he says, therefore, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now that's strange. Why? Why does he see this as sin against God? How does he see this as sin against God? And I think this is crucial for us to think about because this will unlock a key or unlock a door for how we also can fight against strong temptations like this would have been. And I'm about 70% sure of what I'm going to say here, okay? It's, all, it's taught somewhere else in the Bible if it's not, if it's not right here, but, but I didn't get much help from commentators. Lots of them didn't raise the question, but I'm asking the question, how is this a sin against God? And I broke it down into three statements, what Joseph said, three simple statements. Potiphar put everything in my charge, number one. You are his wife, number two. How can I sin against God, number three? It sounds like the first two statements have nothing to do with God except for the fact that the third statement is all about God, which makes me think that th the first two really do have something to do with God, although it's not explicit. Let's take a look at that first statement. How does that have anything to do with God? Well, it's because it wasn't ultimately Potiphar who put Joseph in charge of everything. It was God. We saw that in the, in the, in the first six verses, right? God did this. God was with him. God gave him favor. God caused everything to succeed. God, 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 God. And then God caused Potiphar to put everything in Joseph's hands. So even though that first statement, God isn't explicitly mentioned, Joseph knew this was God. And so what I think Joseph is saying in that first statement, I'm going to add some words to it. God has displayed to me his glorious mercy and his beautiful power by having Potiphar put everything in my charge. So you've got to add a whole lot of God into that first statement to understand, I think, what was really in Joseph's heart and mind. The second statement, I think, is also about God. Notice that Joseph uses the word wife to describe her. And that, that should make careful readers think back about Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God institutes marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's where marriage starts, end of Genesis chapter two. And so the fact that Joseph uses this word wife, you're, you're his wife, 
He's not thinking so much about legal ceremonial things as what God has ordained in Genesis 2. Marriage is God's gift. Marriage is to be honored. We are, we are to honor marriage. And so I think what Joseph is saying in the second statement is, you are his wife and God has called us to honor the gift of marriage. That's those first two statements. Now, if we, if we look at that from those perspectives, and look at how these three statements all work, and I think you'll see how this, how this develops and what was going on in Joseph's heart. First of all, first statement, God has displayed, shown, his glorious mercy. Let me just camp on that, his mercy. Joseph knew, the word steadfast love is at the very end of this chapter also. Joseph knew this wasn't because Joseph earned this from God or deserved this from God. Joseph was trusting God, yes, but this was a lavish gift of grace to Joseph, a 17-year-old slave in Egypt, for the God of the universe to be with him, miraculously blessing the work of his hands. Joseph just said, this is a beautiful display of the glory of God's mercy and of God's power. Power, just making everything he did successful. So God has shown his glorious mercy and power by having Potiphar put everything in my charge. Secondly, you are his wife. And this amazing, glorious, merciful, powerful God has called us to honor marriage. So if God is that glorious, that merciful, that powerful, and if that glorious, merciful, powerful God has called us honor marriage, how could I sin against God by not honoring marriage, not trusting what he says about marriage? Do you see how that works? That's how I think this is developing here. And I think we can learn some crucial truths from this. Ask yourself this question. How do you fight temptation? What do you do to fight temptation? Let's say you find yourself getting impatient with somebody this week or jealous about some situation. Let's say that you're there and, and, and Potiphar's wife winks at you. What are you going to do to resist the temptation? Do you say, I must not sin, I must not sin, I must not sin, I must not sin? See. That's fighting sin by willpower. And that is not how God calls us to fight sin, mostly. It takes a little bit of willpower, but it's, it's not so much willpower as it is truth power or word power. And that's what, what Joseph is doing here. He, he must have been thinking to himself, God has shown his glorious mercy and power to me so beautifully by having Potiphar put everything in my charge. And this glorious, merciful, powerful God has given the gift of marriage and he's, he calls me to honor marriage. So if this glorious, beautiful God has called me to honor marriage, how could I sin against a God like that and not trust what he says about marriage? Do you see how that, that flows, how that, how that works? And notice in verse 10, Potiphar's wife is coming on to him day after day after day, and he continues to resist the temptation day after day after day because this is what's in his heart. So how do you try to fight against sin? I would encourage you to emphasize more truth power, word power, than willpower. I mean, you need a little bit of willpower. You've got you to sit down and get, open up the Bible, okay? Right? And, and you've got you to get ready to pray and to read. That's where the willpower comes in. And then the word power comes in and starts to change your heart. Okay, so there, there is some willpower that's involved. Are we all clear on that? Okay, 
Are you guys getting this? Okay, okay. But it's, it's the word power, it's truth power is where the heart change takes place. Not just by you trying really hard not to think about her anymore. I mean, it's, 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 truth power changes your hearts. That's what happens. So that's how I would encourage you to fight sin. There are other truths in the Bible that we can use as well, but I want us to focus on this truth because this is what we have before us in Genesis 39. So let's take, for example, you're tempted to worry this week. You find anxiety and worry and fear rising up in your heart. How would Joseph fight against that according to Genesis 39? He would encourage us, you, to say to yourself, God has shown to me in Jesus Christ, in my life and saving me, he's shown me his glorious mercy and his power. God is amazing. And, and God has promised me in his word that I never need to worry. This glorious God has said, listen, Fuller, you don't ever need to worry. Trust me. When I see God and I see that he's promised that, how can I sin against him by not trusting him? You see how that works? It's powerful when we start by seeing God in all of his glory and power and mercy. Maybe you're tempted not to forgive someone. How do you overcome that temptation? Well, say to yourself, God has shown me his beautiful glory, power, mercy. He's amazing. And he says he's promised. He's promised in his word to fill me with such love that I am enabled to forgive anyone for anything. He's promised that. So how could I sin against him and not trust that he will do what he's promised? God, fill me with your love so I can forgive. Do you see how that works? One more example. Maybe you're tempted to speak badly about someone. Maybe somebody at the workplace. Maybe uh, somebody in your extended family that you're at odds with. How would you fight that temptation? Think about how God has displayed his glorious mercy and power in Jesus, in your life, in saving you, and how faithful he's been to you. Just think about God's glory and how he's promised that you will have more joy in him by not speaking badly about others. He's promised that. Okay, how could I not trust him? How could I sin against him by not trusting a God of that glory? How could I do that? Truth power, word power, will change your heart, strengthen your faith. You will be enabled to obey. So here's how I'd summarize verses 6b through 10. Joseph resisted temptation by seeing and trusting God's glorious mercy and power. I just need to tell you, here's how I experienced this yesterday morning. I'll keep this a little bit vague. Somebody owes us some money. Nobody here, okay? Nobody here owes us any money. We owe you everything. Uh, but somebody owes me some money, owes us some money. And uh, I've been doing pretty well. Uh, and we're just being patient. I'm getting good, good counsel, a lot of good counsel about how to, how to deal with this. Um, but the last couple of days, I have just felt a little bit of resentment and bitterness rising up in my heart about this. And here I'm working on this sermon, and, and I'm, I'm saying, God, I, I, Forgive me, help me, help me just to trust you, give me wisdom for what to do, help me to be at peace, but just this, this kind of a, like you have a low-grade fever sometimes, just kind of a low-grade resentment was kind of bubbling away. You know how that goes? Okay. But here's what happened. I was working on this sermon yesterday, maybe it's 10, 11 in the morning, and I was talking about it. we've got to see God in his glory and his mercy and his power. And all of a sudden, I just, <laughs> I just noticed the resentment was gone. 
gone. Uh, we still want the money back, but I wasn't resentful about it. I wasn't worried about it, because I saw, I mean, God, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Whatever God does here, it's going to be good. He will be glorified. I can trust him. My resentment was gone. My, some worry was gone. That was yesterday morning. So I, I recommend this by personal testimony. Okay, Joseph is right. This is powerful in overcoming temptation. So not so much willpower as word power, truth power, who God is power. It'll change your heart. Okay, story's not over there. Gets worse, all right? What does Moses emphasize next? Verses 11 through 20, look at what Moses repeats. But one day... When Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. A little more aggressive here. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he, Potiphar, has brought us among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Okay, so Potiphar's wife is not easily discouraged, okay? She comes on to Joseph more strongly, more aggressively, takes hold of his garments. But again, Joseph is so captured by God's glorious mercy and power and faithfulness and beauty. This is his, Potiphar's wife. How could I dishonor God by dishonoring the gift of marriage? No, and he flees from Potiphar's wife. Now you might wonder, why did he flee? Why did he just stand there full of God's glory and just say no? Why did he flee? Moses doesn't tell us, but from other scriptures, here's a couple of, of suggestions. One reason was because Joseph knew how deadly dangerous sin is. Flee! Another reason was Joseph knew that as strong as he had been, he didn't want to presume on what God had done in giving him strength, and he knew he was weak, so he fled. Okay, two reasons. And also, Joseph just knew there's times to flee. There's times to stand and fight. There's times to flee. And I just want to encourage some of you, it may be that you need to understand that you need to flee a situation. Maybe you've been facing a temptation regularly and succumbing to it again and again and again. And God may be saying, 
um, flee. Flee. There are times to flee. Um, turn the computer off. There are times to flee. Leave the movie theater. This isn't at all what we're expecting to see here. Yikes, what is going on here? There's times to flee. Goodbye. I do not need this. There's times to flee. Maybe you are, maybe a, a, a man at your work or a woman at your workplace is sending you messages on LinkedIn or something and they're a little bit hmm, personal and, and, and maybe you're getting drawn in and you're starting to go back and forth with this person who's not your spouse and it's time to flee. Just shut the LinkedIn account down. Just off, cancel, goodbye, not worth it. Remember, Jesus said, if, if, big if, if it's your eye that causes you to stumble, it's not, but, but if it was, gouge it out. Much better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. Flee. So there's times when we need to flee. And some of you, you need to flee. Don't play games. Don't play footsie with sin. Get out of there. That's what Joseph did. And notice how Moses emphasizes how Potiphar's wife was lying about the truth. Moses wants us to be clear, wants us readers to be clear. Joseph was in the right here. She was in the wrong. Notice that phrase that's repeated four times. Um, he left his garment and fled, but then the, the phrase I underlined, she changes it. The truth was he left his garment in her hand. She was the aggressor. She was pursuing him. She was guilty. But she lied and changed it. He left his garment beside me and fled. That's a lie. She repeated twice. And so I would summarize this section as Joseph is unjustly, unjustly accused and thrown into prison. That's what Moses wants us to get from that section. And now there's one last section. Think about poor Joseph. So he's gone from freedom in Genesis 37 to slavery at the beginning of chapter 39 to prison at the end of chapter 39. It's gotten worse than slavery. So what happens to Joseph in prison? Verses 21 through 23. This is amazing. But the Lord was with Joseph. Remember the Lord who was with Joseph in his slavery? The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Again, this is mercy from God. Yes, Joseph was trusting him, but this was not earned or deserved by Joseph. You may think, I don't earn or deserve anything good from God, and you're right. None of us does because of our sin, but God loves to show mercy. He delights in mercy. So the Lord was with Joseph, showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Repeated twice. Do you see that? This is wonderful. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Just like at the beginning of the chapter, right? Moses very intentionally is repeating the same language at the end of the chapter as was in the beginning of the chapter. So think about this. Even though Joseph moved from the horrible situation of being a slave to the even more horrible situation of being in prison, the Lord 
was with him. He makes everything he does succeed. He has the keeper of the jail put everything in his charge. Joseph is responsible for everything. So here's how I'd summarize this last section. Even in prison, even in prison, the Lord is with Joseph and miraculously gives him so much success that he ends up overseeing everything, just like in Potiphar's house. Okay, so we put all these events together, and we're asking now, what does this mean for us? Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us truths here in in this chapter, chapter 39. Now, some commentators think that the main point of the chapter is how Joseph fought and overcame temptation. And I think that's a important point, a crucial point, but I don't think it's the main point because the power of Joseph or of Moses at the beginning of the chapter, emphasizing the Lord is with him, gave him success, everything was put in his charge, and repeating it at the end of the chapter. The Lord was with him, God caused everything he did to succeed, everything was put in his charge. To open with that and to close with that, that's what God wants us mostly walking away with. But still, it's a point though about how to fight against sin. So here's what I would encourage you to do in terms of fighting against sin. Fight sin by truth power. Start off each day opening up the scriptures, praying, worshiping, saying, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory again. Pour out your spirit upon me. Fill me up with you. Because see, if you're filled, you won't be hungry for sin. You'll be filled, right? If you're, if you're filled, if you're satisfied, you're not going to be tempted by, a, by a, a dried up, moldy peanut butter sandwich in the gutter, right? If you're filled. Does that make sense? That's sin, right? If, you, if you've got the, I think I've used this illustration before, if you've got the filet mignon of God's glory, if you're feasting on that, you're not going to be tempted by the, the moldy peanut butter sandwich of sin, right? So feast first thing in the morning. Feast. Get your heart full of the Lord. So I'm not, I'm not going to sin against God. He's everything. He's, he's God. He's glorious. He's merciful. He's powerful. I'm not going to settle for the, the lesser pleasures of sin. So fight sin with truth power. Start the day feasting, getting filled with the Lord. That is a, a point from this chapter, but I think the main point is this. No matter what situation you're in, God is with you because you're trusting Jesus. Because you're trusting Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. And from now to eternity, God is pursuing you with blessing and favor and good and love and glory and joy. This is God's heart towards you. Never any punishment, it was all punished upon Jesus. All you'll receive from now on for eternity is God's love and mercy. So because you're trusting Jesus, God is with you. Now, what if you're not yet trusting Jesus? Trust Jesus. Trust him. You've heard enough truth from Genesis 39 to understand who Jesus is. There's still lots more to learn. But you've got enough to understand that you should turn away from your sin and trust Jesus to forgive you, and he will, all your sin, past, present, and future. Trust him to change you 
He will change your heart. You will feel your heart start to change. It's amazing. Just like what I experienced yesterday. God can change your heart. He'll forgive you. He'll change you. And he will satisfy you. He will fill you. You'll be content. You'll be at peace. You will know his love, the love you've longed for all your life. So if you're not yet trusting Jesus right now, turn from your sin and trust him. And he will go to work forgiving you, changing you, satisfying you. And then you will know that for the rest of your life, the Lord will be with you. So here's what this means. Because you're trusting Jesus, there is never any reason to despair. Never any reason. There's never any reason for you to be hopeless or to be discouraged. Never. Some of you are despairing this morning. You are feeling hopeless. You are feeling discouraged. There is never a reason to despair, feel hopeless, or be discouraged. Not if you're in slavery, not even if you're in prison, or not even if you're facing whatever you are facing. There is never any reason to despair, be hopeless, or discouraged. Why? Because the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And because he's with you, he will satisfy your heart with his presence as you seek him, and he will work powerfully in your circumstances by his power as you trust him. So seek him and trust him. The Lord is with you. Let's stand together. God, I pray that you would touch the hearts of those who are not yet trusting you so that they would see even more clearly right now your reality, your beauty, your mercy, the love you've shown us in sending Jesus to be punished in our place for our sins and so that right now they would turn from their sin and trust Jesus and be saved, forgiven, changed, filled. Do that right now, we pray, by your power. And Lord, for those who are in very difficult situations now, tempted to despair, to hopelessness, to discouragement, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their faith with this truth from your word that you are with them because they are trusting Jesus. You are with them and your presence will satisfy them as they seek you and your power will work as they trust you. So Lord, right now, move upon this whole church body here and free people from despair right now in Jesus' name. Free people from hopelessness right now in Jesus' name. Free people, Lord, right now from discouragement, I pray in Jesus' name. Let faith rise, let peace grow, let hope fill our hearts. We praise you, Lord. We are, we are never alone because you are with us and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.